Well, good evening, friends. It is good to see you all here this evening. Well done. I thought uh, I said to my wife, Leonie, last night, uh, you know, if no one turns up at church tomorrow, I'm probably not going to be that surprised given the, uh, the temperature. So you're here. Good on you. Well done. It's uh, good that you're here and uh, so good that you've taken not just time to come to church for your own person, but come to church to encourage and build each other up. That's uh, really what we're here for as we come under God's word and let it shape our lives together. Um, I did just want to quickly say too, if I could, just publicly uh, so thankful to God for the ministry of Jason amongst us over the last two years. He gets about his work uh, quietly behind the scenes and yet uh, God has been using him in incredible ways amongst our young people but also amongst others here at church. And uh, so I'm thankful to you, brother. Thankful for what God has done in you. Uh, your heart of self-sacrifice for the sake of others has been evident since the day that you arrived at Wild Street. And so good on your Bayside. Uh, they're very fortunate. But, you know, God's been at work in you as we hope he'll be at work in us so that we can serve each other uh, in the way that you've modelled it to us over the last couple of years. Why don't we pray and uh, look at this passage that we've just had read for us. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you uh, that you are a God who is so concerned for us that you've gone to extraordinary lengths to make us your children, to bring us back into a relationship with you, to deal with our sin and all of the things that we have done that isolate us from you and break relationship with each other. But you are a good and loving God and we have a great hope because of the resurrection. And so we pray, Lord God, that tonight as we reflect on this a little more, uh, that you would help us to understand it even better and how the resurrection shapes our daily lives every single day. And so we ask your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago in a Bible study group not so far away, the topic of study was heaven. Uh, and the Bible study leader began the study by actually asking the group members just for a show of hands as to whether the resurrected Jesus is now a body or a spirit. And the results were spirit, 11, body, zero. One helpful member of the group offered the corrective. He's not invisible, though. He's more like Casper the Friendly Ghost. That's helpful. Um, it's not the most important question in Christianity, but it is nonetheless a crucial question of Christianity. It's important because it has a bearing on our own resurrection. I wonder how you would have answered that question. I know that when I was young, uh, I used to think that when a Christian died, uh, they kind of become like one of the angels. Uh, they were kind of a spiritual being that developed wings and sang in the angelic choir, praise to God all day. Uh, that was the way my brain thought. Didn't quite grab me, really. Um, I, I used to be in a kid's choir. Um, we'd practice for an hour every Sunday afternoon. It was kind of excruciating. Uh, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Not that I didn't love singing. I loved singing. But rehearsal just seemed tedious. Uh, so I couldn't quite imagine how I'd go when heaven came. And I did, I did think that it was a good idea to sing praises to God, but it had to be all day, and you know how in heaven there is no time, and so how long is a day anyway? And I kind of thought, well, I just hope I live a really long time here on earth before I have to go and do that. There you go. I've just confessed the way I used to think. Uh, Paul has been arguing that the resurrection of Jesus is not just good for Jesus, it's good for us. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the basis of our hope that we will also be raised from our deaths. In, in fact, Paul says it's the guarantee that we too will be raised from the dead. Now, the question that Paul addresses today is, what is the nature of our resurrection? 
That's the uh, essence, if you like, of the questions that he poses right at the beginning of today's passage, and then he goes on to answer there in verse 35. Look what he says in verse 35. He says, Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, it's one question, really. The second question just kind of qualifies the first. But before we get to answering that, it's important, I think, to keep remembering uh, something that I think is important right throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul isn't simply concerned with the details about our resurrection in the future. He's actually primarily concerned about the implications of our future resurrection for the way that we live our lives right here and now. So our, our response to Christ's victory on the cross and the hope of a future glorified resurrected body is for Christians to stand firm and to abound in the work of the Lord. We read that there right in the last verse of chapter 15, verse 58. That's the climax that it's all coming to. We need to keep this kind of overriding purpose in mind, uh, but we're going to come back to it later as we get to the end of the chapter. Because we begin with the nature of our resurrection. And the first thing to note is that the body that we have now is not exactly the same as our future body. Now, Paul, uh, you might have noticed, uses an agricultural analogy that we're all familiar with to illustrate the difference here. But he also uses it to illustrate the appropriateness of the body that God gives for the setting that we're in. Uh, have a look again at verse uh, 36 and following. So answering their question, he says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. A star differs from star in glory. Now, it's quite amazing, I think, that God has written this principle of death and resurrection into nature. Uh, when a seed is placed into the ground, it must die or it cease to exist in its current form so as to bring about new life. The po point that Paul is making, though, is that the body that grows from the death of the seed is different. The seed doesn't just grow into a big seed. Rather, God gives it an appropriate body for its purpose. In fact, we see it quite clearly in creation. Uh, the various creatures have different bodies appropriate for their setting and purpose. So a fish, for example, has a body that is perfectly suited for living in water, but pretty useless for living on land. And you couldn't get a tree, for example, to stand in for the moon because the bodies that God has given the various parts of creation are appropriate for their setting and their purpose. And so when he speaks of their glory, he's actually speaking of the very essence of what something is. That's what he means when he uses that word glory over and again. And Paul makes the point with great clarity for us there in verse 50. Look what he says. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The bodies we possess now are not exactly the same as our future bodies. They're not fit for God's kingdom. They're not fit for eternal life. Can you imagine 
uh, being raised to life with your bad back or your chronic fatigue or your um, arthritis or your diabetes. Might, these might be things you don't even worry about right now. Or your depression. Imagine that. No, the resurrection body, Paul says, will be quite different. This body is not suitable for life in God's kingdom. However, is that all we're supposed to see here? That our resurrection bodies will be different? Well, can I say, here's the link that we have, if you like, with our Bible study leader who asked his group the question about whether the resurrected Jesus is now a body or a spirit. In fact, this Bible study group would have fitted in uh, really quite well with the church in Corinth. It appears that the thinking in Corinth was that the possibility of a dead corpse being brought, being brought back to life was a terrible doctrine. Earlier in Paul's letter, you get the idea that they think that they're already really spiritual people. They'd received the Holy Spirit. They were ex exercising different spiritual gifts. They thought that they had already entered the heavenly spiritual existence. To them, the body was corrupt and evil. But Paul won't have a bar of that kind of faulty thinking. Uh, no doubt our bodies that will be raised and will and must be different in some way. But they're still our bodies that will be raised. There's a clear continuity with our bodies in this life and in the next life. But a transformation will take place to make them suitable in God's kingdom. The best, uh, I think, and only illustration that we have, of course, is that of the resurrected Jesus himself. So uh, Paul has already told us that Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised to life again, and he was seen by a bunch of people. What was it that was missing from the tomb? It was Jesus' body. What was it that people saw when they saw Jesus raised? They saw the embodied, recognisable person of Jesus. And so the analogy of the seeds is meant to point out both the genuine continuity of our resurrected bodies with our bodies now, but also their transformation into suitable bodies for their future existence. Now, I imagine you would have all seen a cicada shell. Um, it's an amazing ability that God has given these little creatures. They live in the ground, in their shells, for a number of years, but when they come to the surface, to live on the surface, they have to shed their shells. And they somehow manage to get out of their shells and leave the shell intact, which looks virtually the same as the fully-fledged cicada. But while their shell is... Uh, necessary for life under the ground, they can't remain in their shell. They're transformed to live above the ground. There's continuity between life below and life above. Both the shell and the cicada are recognisable, even though the cicada has been transformed for its new environment. All this, of course, is good news. You will be you and I will be me, resurrected. Won't it be good to recognise and to enjoy those who we've known on earth without the sin and sickness and grief that is also attached to life here? Well, in the next section, Paul continues to flesh out this transformation that takes place. And his point is that our resurrection bodies will be superior to our current bodies. Now, let's look again at what he says from verse 42. So verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And I imagine that most of you will uh, remember uh, when Jesus was alive, he raised one of his friends, Lazarus, from the dead. Um, and you can read about it in John 11. But when he raised Lazarus from the dead, it wasn't the same as our future resurrection. Lazarus, uh, you might remember, was resuscitated. He was brought back to life, but only to die again. He hadn't broken out of his bondage to decay that our earthly bodies exist in. His body, like ours, is perishable, dishonourable, or lowly in comparison. And it's weak. That's the character of what Paul calls our natural or our earthly bodies. The Corinthians would have agreed with that assessment of the human body. The shock for the Corinthian church would have been that the resurrection body could be called spiritual. Now, for them, the terms body and spiritual didn't go together. And you'll notice that Paul picks up again on his comparison of Adam and Christ to make a point. We looked at the, uh, the line of Adam and the line of Christ just a couple of weeks ago. The spiritual body is the body that bears the likeness of Christ, he says. It's the body that is transformed like Christ's body to be fitted out properly for the life to come, which Paul says is imperishable, glorious, powerful. There, there will be a change at the resurrection. There will be a change when the Lord Jesus returns, but it won't be a change from bodily to ghostly. The change will be from perishable to imperishable. We all have a natural earthly body like our ancestor Adam. It's corrupted by sin and it will perish. It's the cicada shell, if you like. But if we have accepted the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus on our behalf, then at the resurrection, we'll be fitted out with an imperishable body, a deathless body, a body just like the man from heaven, Jesus. That body will be truly spiritual. So what do you reckon all of this has to say about six-packs and uh, stretch marks and those kind of things? Personally, I think I'm more likely to be able to develop stretch marks rather than six-pack. Uh, but nonetheless, over the last 12 months, you know, I've been uh, getting up early every morning during the weekdays. Leonie, my wife, and I have been uh, getting up to exercise. Uh, and you can't tell the difference at all, can you? But anyway. But, you know, it doesn't actually matter that much, really, if I take this passage seriously. Not that exercise isn't good, I think you should keep doing it, but whatever use uh, the exercise I do actually is for this particular body, ultimately it's going to be futile in this perishable body of death. But how good is the resurrection? And we have the assurance that death does not grimly write the last page of our earthly existence, but life does. Life in a truly spiritual body that is powerful, glorious, imperishable, a body that doesn't even need exercise. Now, this certainly puts our present sufferings 
uh, our growing old, our cellulite, our pain, our, even our death, into an entirely different light, doesn't it? But in case you think that the only way to receive these transformed bodies is by dying, Paul actually makes it clear that the resurrection bodies are not only for the dead. Uh, have a look at what he says from verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So here's where our understanding of the resurrection moves away from the analogy of the seed that dies. I mean, certainly those who die will be raised with transformed bodies. But notice, death is not a prerequisite, Paul says. We shall not all sleep. Resurrection day will come with a world full of people still alive. You and I may not die before the trumpet is sounded to announce the Lord Jesus' return, but at that moment we will all be changed. We will all be fitted out with our transformed bodies. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. Life is like, if you like, the dressing room before the big match. Here's Paul's point. Whether we've died or whether we're still alive on the last day at the return of Christ, in a split second, all of us will and must be fitted with our new imperishable bodies that are fit for the new heavens and the new earth. See, here is the hope of the perfecting of the real bodily you. And that's the only you there is. Now, who can imagine a body without weakness, without infection or tiredness or sickness or death? And so Paul anticipates the shouts of victory that will be uh, filling the air at the return of Christ. It, it will be a victory parade like no other. The celebrations that followed the last kind of soccer World Cup, if you remember them, uh, for the victors won't actually register on the Richter scale in comparison to Christ's victorious return. Look at verse 54. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may or may not remember the uh, Beaconsfield mine collapse back in April 2006. Uh, in Tasmania. Uh, two guys, Todd Russell, uh, Brant Webb, were trapped underground for 14 days while the nation watched on at every nail-biting moment as they tried to rescue them. And, you know, it, it was a stark reminder of the craving that we have for life, of the tenacity by which we seek to hold on to life, of the lengths that we will go to preserve it and to save it, of the pain and anger we feel when someone loses it. I mean, the ordeal of those two miners had thrust the reality of our mortality before us yet again. You know, we get angry at death. It wasn't meant to be like this. No, it wasn't, Paul says. Death is not just a natural and unpleasant phenomenon. The Bible makes it clear that it's actually the punishment of God. But more to the point, it's an evil that exists only because of man's rebellion against God. And so we need to see that the meaning of Jesus' death and his resurrection is found in the need for sin 
for your sin and for my sin to be properly dealt with. See, that's crucially important for us to understand. If if you haven't ever asked God to forgive your sin and to restore your relationship with him, then can I suggest you don't leave it. Speak to someone about it today. What does that mean? It's too important to ignore or to put it off. Because the euphoria we we witnessed at the announcement that those two miners were alive, uh, that euphoria was incredible, but it was nothing, or it is nothing, compared to the euphoria that those in Christ will experience when Christ returns and death is decisively and finally defeated. See, right now, we we still struggle, don't we? We struggle with sin, we struggle with illness, uh, we struggle with death. Our ministry that we do at times looks weak, unimpressive, like Paul's. You know, the Corinthians thought Paul looked weak and unimpressive in his ministry. But then when Jesus Christ returns, then we can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, Paul says, death did its best, death did its best but had no claim. Well, Paul concludes his argument here in chapter 15 on the resurrection with a therefore. Uh, And it's a critical therefore because he wants them to be crystal clear about the implications of our future resurrection for the way that we live our lives now. Uh, Look what he says there in verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Our coming resurrection is not just information. It ought to produce a level of transformation in our lives. There ought to be an impact on our thinking and our actions now while we await Christ's return. The future shapes our present actions, or it should. We should be living resurrection-driven lives in the present. Paul says that, the res- that resurrection-driven lives, what, is, what are they? He says they are steadfast and immovable. That is, sometimes, so, some, some of the Christians at Corinth had become doubtful about the resurrection. But Paul has reminded them that the resurrection, along with the rest of the gospel, was a matter of first importance for their salvation. If there's no resurrection, then Paul's teaching is in vain, and so is their salvation. See, the goal of biblical teaching is that we would be steady and unshakable. We need to be mature Christians. Our roots need to go down and be anchored deep in the truths of the gospel. We're not to be double-minded, as uh, James puts it in his letter, tossed around by every wind of teaching and the craftiness of men. Troubles shouldn't shake our confidence in Jesus. Sadness, pain, sickness personal hurts, etc., shouldn't cause us to move away from the gospel. We can stake our lives on the future that Jesus has already won for us. The second implication of having had our our sins forgiven is that we would be abounding in the work of the Lord, Paul says. Uh, It's the other really important outcome of living resurrection-driven lives. Uh, And what Paul means by the work of the Lord is gospel ministry. Uh, It's about doing everything you can to help make Christ known. Our our hope of glory is the strongest incentive for abounding in the work of the Lord. 
especially when the going is tough or if it just kind of seems unexciting to be involved in the different kinds of ministries that you might be involved in. There are, there are two significant phrases that Paul has repeated often that shape everything we labour for in this life. We either labour in vain or we labour in the Lord. Paul urges us to abound in the work of the Lord because if we are in the Lord, then our labour is in the Lord. And then we can be, be assured by Christ's resurrection that it's not done in vain. There's no shortage of labouring in our society, much of which is for good things. But if all we labour for are things that won't last beyond this world, then Paul would say they're ultimately in vain. If a Christian has no time or energy to invest in gospel ministry because of their labours in other areas, they're not living resurrection-driven lives. But if we allow every aspect of our lives to be shaped by the resurrection, then the things that we do every day will be invested with gospel intentionality then our studies will be shaped by gospel intentionality. Our work will be shaped by gospel intentionality. We'll use our wealth with gospel intentionality. We'll play sport in a way that reflects Christ. We'll think about our looks and our bodies in a way that honours Christ. Whatever influence we have, we'll be using it to point people to Christ. Our hope of resurrection sets us free to give ourselves to the work of the Lord. And we do it with the great confidence that what we do has real value and real purpose, not only for now, but for all eternity. In fact, the hope of resurrection enables us to consider what we do with our time, how we spend our money, what tasks, what goals we pursue in life. Why give yourself to vain pursuits when you can give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labour in the Lord is not in vain? Now have a think about what the focus of your labours are. And one of the big questions is, do I care about the lost in our world who don't know the love of God for them? Those who don't know that unless they have their sins forgiven, they're destined to face God's judgment. Do I care about those people? Do I hurt for those people? Do I love them like Jesus loves them? Are you maximising every opportunity you have for the cause of Jesus Christ? Because living for the resurrection means dying to self every day in love for the salvation of others. That's what Paul wants us to hear. Let's pray and ask him to help us. Our gracious and loving God, we thank you for the reminder tonight and for Paul's reminder to the church in Corinth so many years ago that the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only guarantees our resurrection but it changes our daily living each and every day. Father, only in Christ and through his death on our behalf and his resurrection that defeated sin can we have eternal life, can we have forgiveness can we have relationship with you can we have an assurance that we too will be raised from the dead father we pray that as we have that confidence and that complete assurance of the future that is ours when jesus returns that we would then invest every day of this life desiring to see other people know and come to love 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as we seek to do that, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.